that year. And um, I really wanted to walk up one week to Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin. Um, and so I did that uh, and, call, and, and talked about climbing a ladder to God. And as I thought about that in reference that I actually found that old sermon, um, it was okay for the time. But anyway, um, just thought I'd share that image of someone walking up to that beginning opening of a Led Zeppelin song. Um, but I, I use this image because I think a lot of us think about our relationship with God as like this image that we have from Jacob's ladder. Remember, Jacob falls asleep uh, and, and, and he has this image of God way up at the top of the ladder. At least that's how we think of it. And, 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 we, have, and we have this big ladder up to God and somehow it's a connection to heaven. And, but I think about how the Tower of Babel happened in Genesis 9, right? And the Tower of Babel that was essentially trying to build up a tower to God, trying to have humanity get its way up to God. And I just wonder for us, how did that story work out, right? Like that didn't end up so well and everyone ends up scattered. And this idea of us somehow climbing up to God doesn't always work. And we feel guilty because we are not ever doing enough in our relationship with God. At least this is how I feel a lot of times. I'm not praying enough, we might think. I'm not reading my Bible enough. I'm not at church enough. This is the guilt that I was tempted to induce on you with the sermon series about priority that I was planning to preach to you that I told you my wife wouldn't let me. And then when we're do-gooder type of people, we feel guilty for not doing enough to save the world. I found myself in this place during COVID when we were getting constant updates. Remember checking daily like what the rates were about COVID and then there was still global tumult happening and then there were still people of color being taken, uh, their, their lives being taken at an alarming rate. And the do-gooder just becomes exhausted in this way. The Reverend Nadia Bolz-Weber said it this way in an article right in the midst of COVID. I just do not think our psyches were developed to hold, feel, and respond to everything coming at them right now. Every tragedy, injustice, sorrow, and natural disaster happening to every human across the entire planet in real time, every moment of every Day. And you might say, yes, that's how it feels sometimes when I can click open the news and look at a different feed from the hour before, and it's constantly updating, constantly changing, and we know about everything in this interconnected world. So then the voice in our head creeps in, that little voice of guilt that says, you're not doing enough. You could be doing more this week, I'm going to introduce to you a concept that I've been reading about in David Zoll's book that's called Low Anthropology. And in Low Anthropology, essentially what Zoll is getting at in this book is that too often in our world, he says, we have what he calls a high anthropology. Anthropology, right, is just how we think about people, how we think about ourselves even. And his argument is that sometimes our anthropology is so high that we are then always feeling guilty and always disappointed. Now, Zal, in kind of a tongue-in-cheek fashion, but also one that resonates, argues then for a low anthropology, for really not thinking that much of ourselves and others, and that when we start from that point, then we can actually be pleasantly surprised by the marks of grace that happen in the world. 
And he talks about three marks of low anthropology that help us kind of disarm a high anthropology. The first one that he talks about is limitation. Limitation. Do you remember those Adidas ads from a few years back? They're probably 15 years ago now that said anything is possible. Anything is possible is the great American thought over the last 100 years. Not only you can be whatever you want to be or do whatever you want to do or go and achieve that entire bucket list type of thing. One author called a Christian author has books titled these, Your Greater is Coming. Empty out the negative. Rule your day, which leads to the book, the latest one that's literally come out called Life Without Limits. This, friends, is not really Christian theology. I would call it really self-help mixed with bad theology. The result of this is that you feel guilty for not feeling 100% all of the time. And then you feel like you're not faithful to God because you aren't constantly putting out good vibes into the universe right? Zal's definition of limitation is this. Limitation means that we are bound by time and biology and history and all sorts of other factors that shape our behavior. There is real liberation in recognizing that we are creatures with limited capacities and that we can only ever know and experience the world in a partial way. In other words, limitation recognizes I am not God, Neither are you. I need rest. I need food. I need air. I need water. Sometimes bad things happen to me. Sometimes I'm in a bad mood. I have limits. And you see, the problem is in our culture, in our society, we feel like we are supposed to be showing that we're supposed to be putting out there that we live the perfect life. And we don't necessarily live the perfect life. I don't know about you, at least I don't. And, and so then we feel isolated from others who seem and appear to be living the perfect life, especially on social media. That way that was supposed to connect all of us then ends up being like a curated version of ourselves that we want to put out there that shows to others how we are living a perfect life and where we fall short and see where everyone else seems to be actually leading it. Within this concept of limitation, there's also this idea that we cannot know everything. The older that I get, which my youth and confirmation with me remind me each week is very old, then the more I know that I don't know. That is a limitation. It doesn't mean that we don't pursue truth or pursue information. We just recognize that we and everyone else have limits to our understanding. And the final limit that he talks about, and the final one that we all have to approach, is this one. We are going to die. This is the basic limit. And our culture is constantly trying to run away from this fact. I would argue one of the best things in the Christian tradition that keeps you grounded when coming week in and week out is a reminder that we are going to die We don't try to shy away from this fact in our tradition. 
but in our culture, we shield children from funerals. We make death happen in professional places and spaces, not in our homes like it once did. We anti-age and fountain of youth ourselves as much as we possibly can. God forbid that you have wrinkles when you get older or your hair turns the natural color it's supposed to turn. A realistic and healthy approach to life involves the admission that we will all die. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, it begins, an ever-present help in times of trouble. Friends, the admission within Psalm 46 and throughout basically every psalm is that we have limits. We need a refuge and a help. The only people who need a refuge and a help are people who are in trouble, who are not God, right? So I'm here to break the Adidas slogan from back. And anything is not possible. I know that sounds horribly countercultural today, or at least like I'm being a downer. But I would actually argue that it's being an upper, <laughs> that, that in feeling the release that everything has to be perfect all the time might actually free us from the sense of guilt that we have in the back of our minds. The second merit of low anthropology that Zal talks about is this. He calls it doubleness. And this might be the most important one. His definition of doubleness is this. It refers to the competing forces or voices that drive our behavior. It describes the baffling divergence between what we think we want and what we actually do. Romans 7, starting in verse 15. Paul writes, I don't know what I'm doing because I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do the thing I hate. But if I'm doing the thing I don't want to do, I'm agreeing that the law is right. But now I'm not the one doing it anymore. Instead, it's the sin that lives in me. I know that good doesn't live in me. That is in my body. The desire to do good is inside of me, but I can't do it. I don't do the good that I want to do, but I do the evil I don't want to do. But if I do the very thing that I don't want to do, then I'm not the one doing it anymore. Instead, it is the sin that lives in me that is doing it. Paul here is arguing that even something that is good, like the law, like the Torah, gets co-opted by sin. This is Israel's plight in this passage. The law is supposed to lead them to God, but instead it reveals the problem of sin. This passage, however, is not just a devil-made-me-do-it excuse that gives you an excuse to do whatever you want because, oh, well, sin was working within me. But at the same time, when I read that passage at face value, it does describe our human condition. I think about it like this way. When I say hurtful words to the very people I love most in the world, my, what I want in my heart is not matching up with what I am doing in real life. Who can make sense of that? That's doubleness, as Zal talks about it. And one feature of doubleness is this. More information, more head knowledge doesn't change my behavior. He gives this example. In 2008, in 2008 was when the FDA said, we're going to make the calorie count appear whenever you order things at a fast food restaurant. And so you notice that from then on, anytime you've gone to most places, even at some sit-down chains and stuff like that, the calorie count sits next to those things. And they talk about that after that year, after a full year of that calorie count had gone in, you would expect people to be like, oh no, I shouldn't have that thing. I should go and get this lesser 
choice, or I should maybe not have four gorditas today, but only three, or something like that, right? But instead, what happened is that the, the calorie count that people consumed ticked up the next year, right? So people had the knowledge literally in front of them. They could read how many calories that thing was going to be. And then they still made the choice in the opposite direction of wise. Addiction is rooted also in doubleness. Friends, no one wants to be addicted. It's something out of control that cannot be reined in by just having more information. Everyone who smokes knows that smoking isn't good for them, right? They have seen enough public service ads over their time to realize that it's probably not the best thing for their health, right? But when we have a lower anthropology, or at least start from that position, we can understand that any of us has the capability of being or becoming an addict, Addicts, then, are not just those people over there and me holier than thou over here. Rather, addicts can be any of us. It keeps us in a position of humility that is essential. The other thing we notice in this concept of doubleness is this. The heart is more powerful than the head. We make decisions as human beings from our emotional center That's why advertising works. It appeals to our emotions. We end up wanting this new product. And somehow, when whatever is listening to us knows that we wanted to look at shoes and the shoes pop up on the ad for us right at that time, oh, we know we don't need it. And we know it's probably not even a good use of our money. Oh, but it will make me happy or more satisfied or more content. Advertising appeals to those emotional parts of us, not to the rational parts of our brains. So in order for us to change, in order for human behavior to change, we have to engage the heart. We can't just give ourselves, have a preacher give you, or have, have a spouse give us more information about the best decision to make. And the problem is, in, in our cultural way of under, what we usually do when we want to change is we just engage the mind. We think that if I have more information about this, then I will do something different. The third problem about high anthropology is this one, self-centeredness. In Romans, Paul continues in the next chapter, in chapter 8, verse 7. So the attitude that comes from selfishness is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law because it can't. People who are self-centered aren't able to please God. Selfishness or self-centeredness, as Paul defines it here, as the common English helps define it as self-centeredness, is hostile to God. Zal says this, Low anthropology proceeds from the foundational insight that human beings are egocentric and, crucially, that this is not a neutral trait. Self-centeredness blocks sympathy and cooperation, to say nothing of love. So one place that we have to begin when we think about this is that we are all self-centered. We are all self-centered. And this means that divisions that exist in our world should be approached with skepticism. Really, if we are all self-centered, there is no them out there 
There is only us. A bunch of people trying to get by that frankly try and start and look out for ourselves and that what we need is grace with one another. One way that Zal talks about this when he goes in this chapter about self-centeredness is he talks about cognitive bias, which is a nicer and more, and more scientific way of saying self-centered. He says that when we think about other people, we would say that they have character flaws or we don't consider their circumstances and context when they make a poor decision. But that I have a self-serving bias when I think about myself. For instance, if I do well on a test, I must have studied hard and prepared well for that test. But if I do poorly on a test, those questions were unfair. The teacher didn't teach the material correct. Do you see the results are not about the context in that, or they are completely about the context when it's about me, but not in how I think about other people. And in this, in, in this worldview, sin really looks like an addiction to personal control. And this is the problem of a high anthropology. It doesn't recognize that sin is all over the place. It isn't something that we can just choose to run from and have self-control over No, it is within us. It's within our systems that we make as communities and as bodies of people. We have self-centeredness within us, and our systems have self-centeredness within them. Paul continues in Romans 8, 8, verse 9, But you aren't self-centered, he writes. Instead, you are in the Spirit, if in fact God's Spirit lives in you. If anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to him. If Christ is in you, the spirit is your life because of God's righteousness, but the body is dead because of sin. If the spirit of the one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your human bodies also through his spirit who lives in you. Paul wants to make a point here. When you are in Christ, you are no longer ruled by selfish desires. Sin has been vanquished in our lives. The spirit of Jesus rules in us. So why do we still struggle then with limitation and doubleness and self-centeredness? Well, we go back to this concept of the ladder, this idea of climbing up to God. I thought about that great hymn of the church, A Mighty Fortress is our God. And the second verse of that hymn begins with these words. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Our striving would be losing. Basically, we're talking about a theological difference that's existed since the year 300. And here's the difference. There's a theologian and church leader out there. His name was Pelagius. Okay, And Pelagius said that we move toward God. In other words, we start our way up the ladder to God. There's this other one who you've heard about because he kind of won the argument named Augustine. Okay? And Augustine said this, God always makes the first move towards us. And so what happens is a grand debate that goes back and forth between people writing and kind of messing with each other as it went in those days between Pelagius and Augustine. Who is the first mover in relationship to God? Is it humanity? Picking ourselves up, striving to God up the ladder, or is it Augustine's view where God first comes to us? 
Friends, what I want to tell us and think about this ladder today is this. God comes down the ladder to us and brings us along with God's very self. This is prevenient grace. God opens us up by the Holy Spirit to, very, to, a, to a relationship with God. Friends, God opens the doorway of our hearts to God's movement in our lives. We have all sorts of ways to block this movement in our lives. We have all sorts of mechanisms to not allow God's movement in when God is knocking at the door of our hearts. And we've even made another way to block God's movement, our own striving to prove to God how good we are or how much we deserve God's love. And the problem is we always, always, always fall short. So what is the good news, preacher, about this? The good news is that your relationship with God is not dependent upon your striving. You have limits. You often, most of the time, lead with your heart, even when your head tells you not to. And you do things with selfish intentions. Even when you are a good person and follow Jesus, these limitations are still there. And yes, we can grow. And yes, God works in us. But you are not responsible for climbing up to God. Because the good news is this. God comes to us. The good news is that same good news that we proclaim at Christmas. The good news is incarnation. God comes to us. The good news, my friends, is Pentecost. That, the, that God doesn't leave us alone, but gifts us the Holy Spirit to be with us, to continue to draw us into relationship with God. Y'all, we spent all our time on the bottom four rungs of this eternal ladder, trying to climb up, falling back down, never quite getting it. And the whole time, God is saying, scrap the ladder entirely. I'm here with you. I am here with you. So ultimately, our guilt comes to a problem of theology. Does God stay far away from us? So we have to reach to God all the time. I think that's what for a lot of people in our world it feels like. God or the divine is, is distant, is far away. So all we can do is try to live our best life, put our best foot forward, and, um, and that we reach to God. Or is God near to us? The creator of the universe as present with us, as me talking to you right now, as Psalm 46 says and proclaims, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. I invite you to pray with me. God, we are a people who strive. Many of us have been told about how good this character trait is. How working that extra hour, how giving that extra effort, that 110% will always get us where we need to go. And we've brought that into our faith with you. And Lord, we strive so hard that sometimes we don't receive that grace, that forgiveness 
that embrace from you that says, I love you just as you are. That says, yes, our, your limitations do get in the way, and yet I am removing those, those marks of limitation and opening up my very self to you. So God, I pray that in the midst of our limitations, in the midst of our doubleness, in the midst of our self-centeredness, you would come to us as Emmanuel, God with us. And that as you breathe onto us your Holy Spirit, that you would empower us, that you would empower us to live for you, that you would empower us to have grace and compassion with others who we don't want to. And God, that you would continue to bring us along deeper into journey with you and see the wonder of what it is to be loved by you. In Christ's holy name, amen.